We've all heard the old adage that communication is key. However, nearly 5-10% to of Americans have a communication disorder. This includes speech and language and the deaf and hard of hearing communities. So what interventions are in place to ensure that our children are receiving the necessary support that leads to a successful school experience? And who are these professionals that are responsible for facilitating these critical services? We'll explore those topics and more in this episode of Educationally Speaking. Greetings and welcome to Educationally Speaking. My name is Mark Edwards, Communications Specialist with Oakland Schools and host of this award-winning podcast. In each episode, we focus on important and engaging topics related to education. If this is your first time listening, I appreciate you tuning in. Please follow Oakland Schools on social media and engage with us. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Make sure to tell a friend and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks so much for listening. In this episode, we sit down and discuss Better Hearing and Speech Month. In segment one, we'll be joined by two speech and language pathologists and consultants for Oakland Schools, Diane Katakowski and Jennifer Ryan. In segment two, we will be joined by audiologist Janice Rich and two deaf and hard of hearing consultants, Tina Roy and Nancy Sullivan. All of our guests represent Oakland Schools and serve students from birth to age 26. Let's jump right in. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Explain to our audience the pathway it takes to become a speech and language pathologist slash consultant and walk us through a typical day. How is your caseload determined? What does your day look like? All right. Well, on behalf of Jen and myself, we just want to say thank you for inviting us in to talk about Better Hearing and Speech Month. Absolutely. It is near and dear to our hearts as professionals. Um, so to answer your question, uh, speech and language pathologist is a professional who is trained to work with people of all ages, uh, from newborn babies to the very old, to help with communication, thinking, and actually eating and swallowing skills. So speech language pathologists, uh, we also refer to ourselves as SLPs, complete a graduate degree program from uh, an accredited university. We uh, participate in over 1,600 hours of supervised clinical experience. We have to earn a passing score on a national exam. We obtain state licensure and we complete continuing education every year. And actually, our, that's, that's a lot, um, that but we're almost there. <laughs> There's one other thing we do. Tell us more, tell us more. <laughs> our first year of practice actually is called a clinical fellowship year. So that requires us to be supervised and mentored uh, by an SLP who holds what's called the Certificate of Clinical Competence from our national credentialing agency, the American Speech Language Hearing Association, which we refer to as ASHA. And then successful completion of the first year of practice allows us to earn our own certificate of clinical competence. So what's kind of interesting is the although speech and language pathologists work in a variety of settings, we can work in hospitals, schools, uh, private practice, clinics, long-term care facilities, Jen and I really feel privileged to be able to work in a school environment because as you mentioned, uh, we get to support those critical communication, listening, speaking, and thinking skills that facilitates um, kids' social interaction, academic success, and personal well-being. So all SLPs really are trained clinically to evaluate and treat disorders of communication. However, school SLPs uh, get to go a little bit farther because we get to work as part of interdisciplinary teams. We work with social workers, psychologists, resource room teachers, classroom teachers, administrators, and families. 
uh, to really understand how disorder might be impacting a student's progress in the classroom and whether um, that child might need what's called specially designed instruction. Uh, so um, that is a big chunk of what we do. Now, on any given day, you will uh, see a school speech-language pathologist engage in things like prevention, assessment, intervention. Uh, we will be designing programs. We'll be collecting data and helping teams analyze it and we will be doing all of the compliance activities that go along with it. Uh, an SLP in a school might begin their day with a problem-solving team meeting um, where they sit as part of a team and try to match instructional supports to a student's specific needs. And then once the bell rings and class starts, we might go into a classroom and help co-teach a curriculum lesson that um, is helping to develop language and literacy skills. Then we would probably be heading to individual groups or small groups um, to provide therapy to students with individualized education programs, IEPs, uh, targeting speech and language goals. And then we might also be um, spending time evaluating students um, who may have a potential disability. And then, of course, can't end your day without completing things like progress notes and uh, Medicaid logs and maintaining accurate therapy records for all of this. Um, we like to call parents and plan with teachers, so those um, are other things. I did want to address just last part of your question about caseload determination. Yes. So when for our listeners, that's uh, we're basically explaining how our speech and language pathologists get the load of children that they're going to work with on a daily basis. Exactly. So when it comes to caseload determination, we work primarily with students with IEPs who have goals in the area of speech and language. For very young kiddos, birth to five, a lot of these referrals and evaluations come from uh, maybe community sources like physicians, um, child care uh, workers might notice uh, learning difficulties. Um, and so we connect with families early on that way. Um, and then once kids are school age, um, we connect with them. Speech language pathologists are often the first person that teachers contact when there are concerns that arise. And out of those kids with IEPs are um, state Administ uh, administrative rules for special education say that we work we can work to, with up to 60 at a time. However, uh, what is great is that our special education rules actually for our state mandate that we use a workload approach to speech and language service delivery. So that 60 is actually adjusted based on how severe the student needs are on the caseload, um, you know, whether uh, the extent of services defined is very great. For example, a student with a very severe disability or maybe somebody using alternative communication to communicate, someone on the autism spectrum would require more intensive service delivery. So we work with our administrators to adjust our workloads to make sure that there is time devoted to the service delivery, diagnostics, report writing, consultations, meeting, and travel. You know, that's really good to hear because I know the state of Michigan has been a, a major supporter of special education throughout history and we're, we're trying to prevent or provide quality services and you did mention prevention earlier a little bit. Can you just jump into that for a second? What do you do to try to prevent some of these things from happening? Absolutely. Uh, well, one of our biggest strategies is to partner with the people who get to uh, work with all kids every day. Those are our classroom teachers. So a big strategy is building relationships so that classroom teachers know what to look for 
when it comes to communication delay. Are kids struggling with following directions or learning new vocabulary or, you know, more obvious things like sound delay or maybe some disfluent speaking? And then what we also do is we can align our service delivery to be offering strategies that the teacher could be using in the classroom to support all kids learning vocabulary. There are some instructional routines that um, are good for all kids. And so if teachers are doing those every day with all kids, we can um, help prevent um, missed opportunities for instruction so that, especially when you think in light of the pandemic and some of the different learning experiences that kids have had, we don't want to penalize kids for not having exposure or experience. So if we can provide great instruction right from the start for all kids, then we can prevent um, or maybe close some of the learning or opportunity gaps that have existed. Does Absolutely. that help? It does. That's a great summary and a great start off to this podcast. And it's a big puzzle, and there's lots of pieces to the puzzle. And Diane, that was a great, like I said, a great summary. Jen, let's jump to you. Do you want to pick up off of anything that she had mentioned, or do you just want to get jump right into why is Better Hearing and Speech Month so important? And you know, it's an initiative that takes place nationally, but you're definitely one of the experts here, so jump right in. Sure, absolutely. Well, and I will just add to what Diane said that there um, there is a role for a speech language pathologist on the school's data team. And so informing how um, their, their team looks at the data that is collected across their building, across the grade level, that can be very helpful too um, to lead into some of those preventative or that classroom-wide um, approach or intervention can be a really nice complement to um, the data team. So that's another way that SLPs can be preventative. But um, to your question of better uh, hearing and speech month, this is just such a great initiative for us, um, a great opportunity for us to share our field with you, and we're grateful to be here. Um, so like any campaign that's kind of celebrated for a month, like the, you know, the No Shave November or the Women's History Month, um, the main goal really is uh, awareness. And awareness of speech and language and communication is so important because it, it is something that's so natural to our human experience. Most of us just develop um, the ability to communicate quite naturally and things that we develop so naturally are um, sometimes more complex to understand, right? But when um, we have difficulty with communication, speech language or feeding, those um, difficulties can significantly impact a person's life. Um, so there, if there's greater awareness and understanding of communication, speech and language, we can um, possibly be more proactive with prevention strategies like um, strategies that will promote speech and language development in very young children or knowing the early signs of difficulty in students and then even as adults um, knowing um, the signs of things like a stroke that affect communication or um, you know knowing that we shouldn't have our um, airpods on so loud that we <laughs> impact our hearing Absolutely. I, yeah. think I even struggle with that yeah. a little bit yeah at my night. yeah my 15 year old son definitely does but um, if we uh, you know have these campaigns like better hearing and speech month we can increase our awareness of communication, speech and language. 
And then another benefit of increased awareness is the power of shared understanding. So if we as a society understand speech and language a bit better, then maybe we can accept and honor a wider variety of communication styles or strengths. So rather than assuming that someone who stutters should work harder to become more fluent, we can listen respectfully and honor their communication instead. Or rather than insisting that a child with autism look us in the eye when they talk, um, that maybe we'll acknowledge that they could better focus and formulate their ideas if they look away. So it's just empathy, right? We're just talking yeah. about empathy, yeah. understanding, um, putting ourselves in the shoes of others. That yeah. way we can share, like you're saying, share ideas, share thoughts, maybe even share techniques that would help with these situations. Sure, and, and respecting um, you know, that all communication is valuable and all people have something to communicate, right? I agree. Yeah, and as a school cl clinician, um, you know, Better Hearing and Speech Month offers us this great opportunity to, to raise that awareness in our school districts and, um, you know, the impact that speech and language has on a student's ability to access the curriculum and really just how interdependent communication is with so many of those skills that make students successful. Um, and if you think about a student's day from when they enter the classroom, they interact with their peers, they understand what the teacher's saying or tell about what they've read. Um, communication and speech and language are critical to all of those activities. Um, so we just love May. It's a great opportunity for us to bring those ideas to the forefront. Well, I thank you both for your expertise. Oakland County is definitely lucky to have you, and I just hope that the work that you guys continue to do has breakthroughs and that you're able to serve these families on a daily basis. Because like I said, it is a puzzle. It's, it's you guys working with these families, but it's administrators, it's parents, it's a whole community of support that has to be implemented in order for us to see the results in, in our children and even adults. Yep. Absolutely. So according to the American Speech and Language Hearing Association, ASHA, Diane, as you mentioned earlier, is a, is a very good resource, ASHA.org, if you want to go to that website. But they say that 5% of first grade children have speech disorders. So what is the process of diagnosing these young kiddos and identifying if a student needs these services? What types of interventions or specialized support is being implemented early on? Sure, yeah, children and, and families can take several on-ramps to um, begin interaction with a, an SLP or their speech-language pathologist. Um, sometimes, like Diane said, a pediatrician will recommend evaluation after a well visit with a toddler who isn't meeting those language milestones. Or sometimes a family seeks out the expertise of an SLP because they maybe have difficulty understanding their child or they feel like they aren't developing um, speech and language as they should. Um, but then sometimes a child might develop those early skills and it's only when their comprehension is taxed as they go up through the grade levels um, and language, the language demands become more abstract or complex with um, later reading. Then maybe the teachers or the families begin to notice that some of those higher level language skills um, are not developing as they should and then they'll consult with an SLP um, to see if language evaluation is necessary. But um, no matter how that journey begins, SLPs really are highly skilled diagnosticians. Um, it's a big part of our training. Um, it's a big part of our work. So they will gather information from a variety of sources using a variety of methods um, with the goal of really fully understanding that child's speech or language strengths and needs and whether or not a disability is present. And then in schools, 
If there is, in fact, a speech and language impairment, the SLPs uh, will gather more information to determine if that impairment impacts their ability to participate in activities of daily living or to make progress in general education. So in a clinical setting, um, students can receive um, support if there's any kind of speech and language impairment. But in the schools, we need to make sure that that impairment is impacting their access to general education because we don't want to remove students from general education when there's not um, a need because that's where the gold is. General education um, is where, where students get um, you know, intensive instruction um, and, and are meeting the, the curriculum expectations. But if they, in fact, are struggling to meet those expectations because of a speech-language impairment, then we have, as school SLPs, one more job to do, and that's to determine whether or not they require specially designed instruction. So that means that we are changing, uh, modifying the content, or the way we deliver that content, um, or the, the methodology. Um, While still keeping them in the mainstream classroom. As often as possible, yes. We want to um, provide students access to general education um, in the least restrictive way. I was going to get yep. to that. The least restrictive environment is what we're looking for. Absolutely, always. Um, and that's why Diane talked about some of those services that can be provided right within the classroom. And we're always um, supporting our students within that common uh, curriculum of general education. So accommodations and modifications, a little different, but what we're talking about is maybe sometimes instead of giving a student 20 questions, we're gonna give that student five. Maybe instead of having that student write a paper, we're gonna have that student create a video. Is, are those some of the alternatives that we're talking about so our audience has a better understanding sure, of Sure, absolutely. And then we're also talking about um, helping the student to develop the language skills that underline the ability to do either of those things. Um, so that those language um, underpinnings that come underneath of our ability to, um, or even speech, um, our ability to express ourselves clearly in the video that you talked about. Um, so we are um, specially designing instruction that would help them to access those curriculum accommodations that, that you're talking great about. great work. Mm-hmm, it sure is, yeah. So you shared a stat with me off the record, but I feel it's one that we need to discuss. Uh, currently in Oakland County, 26% of the nearly 24,000 students that have an IEP which is again an individualized education program, are certified with a primary disability of speech and language. How do we stay ahead of that curve? Because there's only so many experts, there's only so many hours in the day. So how do we stay ahead of it and what is needed to provide adequate resources as we move forward for these families? All right, I'm glad you asked because the data is something that I'm very passionate about. We are a data-driven society, are we not? <laughs> exactly. I am on our state website, probably daily, definitely weekly, uh, myschooldata.org. And it's really helpful in understanding the scope of need around communication, speech, and language. Um, so in addition to knowing how many individuals receive special education services as a result of a speech and language impairment, it's important to know that kids who have speech and language impairment are also six to eight times more likely to have a learning disability that impacts them in school and their success. So when we actually look at the big picture, bigger, even than speech-language impairment, it's really not surprising to discover that in our county, as well as in our state, speech-language impairment and specific learning disabilities are our two biggest categories of uh, eligibility areas, um, and they account for over half of the IEPs. 
So um, when you take that into consideration and also consider that speech language delay can co-occur with um, other areas, um, hearing impairment, um, early childhood delay, those kinds of things, um, we really have uh, an urgency to make sure we're identifying and providing really effective services. Um, because our kiddos who struggle with the underlying communication skills that Jen was talking about, they often go on to struggle with uh, the reading, writing, and the thinking demands of the curriculum. So in our county, we are really fortunate to have uh, over 400 incredible local school employed SLPs. So, um, and that number is actually growing across time. So we've been really happy to see workloads playing out and staffing seems to be following that trend of need. But in terms of how do we stay ahead of the curve and really provide effective supports and resources for families, just like you mentioned, we start with awareness campaigns. So thank you for, for having us on your podcast. We are privileged to be here because Great we want to people you. to really understand what communication, speech, language, and hearing disabilities are and how to support them. Well, as a communication specialist, I don't believe there's anything more important um, going through our day-to-day, and I can only feel for those who are having difficulties when it comes to expressing yourself. And when you look at a sheet of paper and you're trying to uh, complete this assignment, if you're having those struggles, I, I, I just... I feel for them so much and so that's why again I wanted you on the show and I feel like this is just great work that you guys are doing every day. And then I was just going to mention too we um, have also some partners we talked about partnering with our staffs in school we also have community partners around us so we've talked about physicians child care providers we have a great group here at Oakland schools that is part of the great start collaborative Oakland uh, group and they really pull together community resource providers as well as schools as well as families and they have a nice campaign promotes all areas of early development but communication especially so I would recommend that people check out Great Start Collaborative Oakland. ASHA also has um, a great campaign called Identify the Signs. It's identifythesigns.org. And it really speaks to the importance of early identification. It's interesting because in the research that is constantly um, continuing and we need it to continue, the research shows that earlier intervention is actually one of the biggest areas um, in age ranges where we see positive impacts of support. The earlier we can help, the better. Exactly. Long term. Exactly. Bigger bang for your buck. There you go. However, I will say too that for students that are already receiving intervention for uh, communication delay, the more that we partner with our families, teachers, and the actual the students themselves to ensure that everybody understands, okay, what's the goal of our intervention? Right? I mean, that's one of the best things we can do for kids receiving intervention is say, okay, why do we get to work together? What do we do? It is fun to play games together because we might be playing games sometimes. However, we are also working on being able to tell my own story, being able to generate a cause effect informational text, being able to speak fluently when I have to give a classroom presentation. So making sure that everybody understands what the goal of our work is together, making sure everybody understands what, what their own role is for carrying out the intervention, right? So how can the teacher support that, the parent and the student? And, and those decisions are being made 
in those IEP meetings with the professionals. Exactly. That's the best strategy is, is that annual IEP meeting to get on the same page and write those goals and talk about that together. And then that leads to the last thing I think is really crucial for um, kiddos receiving intervention is really to all be on the same page about what does acceleration look like and how do we know that we have met our mark? So identifying the indicators that mean Woohoo, I have met my goals. I am no longer impacted negatively in the curriculum by this, and I, I can be exiting an IEP. So, constant evaluation, making the learning fun because then it'll be engaging and they'll want to learn and, and be part of that process. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and getting to generalization and, and really exit. A lot, you know, some of our kiddos will always have needs that we can support, but our goal is to really help kids and families develop um, the self-awareness and the self-advocacy skills to be able to communicate what they need when they need it with you know in any kind of context absolutely so there's also a misconception that school-based speech and language pathologists only work with students that have speech and language impairments and you kind of just covered this where if we have a student who has multiple disabilities there will be multiple experts collaborating working together but I did want to go to Jen on this. Do you want to talk a little bit about sure. that? Sure, yeah, absolutely. Misconceptions around the work of NSLP are pretty common. One that we encounter often is that we work mainly with kids with speech disorders, so just a few speech sounds um, are produced incorrectly. And while the speech um, development aspect of our work is important, not only for expressing yourself clearly, but also for that early sound symbol relationship learning on the road to reading, speech sound therapy is usually a smaller fraction of the work of a school SLP. Um, so in Oakland County, schools, school SLPs typically have caseloads with about a third of their students um, who they're supporting the speech sound disorders and stuttering or voice disorders, but two-thirds thirds of their caseload is um, typically made up of students with language disorders or speech and language disorders, which is, I think, surprising to some people because like I said in the very beginning, language is just something that we have maybe a little harder time thinking about, and it is so complex. But it is so important in school, and that's what brings us um, as SLPs to support language so often on our caseloads. And then there's this other misconception that we commonly hear, and that Diane and you alluded to earlier, and that's the fact that SLPs support speech and language disorders exclusively, and, and we don't. We support kids across um, the educational continuum because uh, speech language impairments often co-occur with other disabilities, and like Diane said, those SLPs are oftentimes the first professional that interfaces with families um, from a very young age. It's, speech and language is often the first uh, indicator of school success. So for our SLPs working with infants and toddlers, their delivery really supports the families and the caregivers and the other staff who's working with them so that those people can provide, the, the families and the caregivers can provide the intervention and the SLP is coaching them through that process. So we work uh, across the educational continuum. Lots of mentorship going on mm -hmm. there with sure. others. Yeah, um, if I could just add on just a little bit. Mm -hmm. You made me think as you were saying, it's such a great point and I will say it's one of the areas impacted from the pandemic that I think actually helped that role much more than anything we were doing maybe in the past. But when the pandemic forced our um, service providers for birth to three to not be able to go into the home, 
and all the supports had to happen to the families through Zoom. Yeah. There was, it was really like a shift in parents understanding like, oh, okay, like no one will is in my home to do this for me, so I am learning how to support this myself. I am learning how to, you know, um, model a, a word, a sentence, a phrase for my child and how to praise them once, once you hear that or how to follow their lead or engage in joint attention. And so that was kind of a really cool, so I think. Gained independence. Unintended consequence, parents. yeah, of mm -hmm. some of the virtual stuff from the pandemic. That's, yeah. that's good, mm -hmm. some positives that come out because we need the parents to be involved. We need the families, the guardians to be involved. Without them, it's just such a it's a it's a big piece of that. And I know that you you're going to deal with some of that from time to time. So again, just you know, um, we need to empower our parents to better provide these services to their own children in the home because environment is so important. We know that, and that's why it's so important for us to have connections with our general education partners too. Because speech and language services for 30 minutes twice a week will never solve the problem. But speech and language services that are integrated with the teacher having the same expectations and the same supports, there you can have then therapy all day long for that student. Yes, relationship-based right. and being yeah. on the same page. Mm -hmm. So yeah. thanks for breaking down some of those misconceptions. You, mm -hmm. did, you definitely helped out there. If you just joined us, I'm speaking with Diane Katakowski and Jennifer Ryan, both speech and language pathologists slash consultants for Oakland Schools. Let's talk about legislation. The Individuals with Disabilities Act, IDEA, is a law that makes available a free and appropriate public education to eligible children with disabilities throughout the nation. And it ensures that special education and related services are available to those children. Then there is the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. You can visit the Department of Education website at ed.gov to learn more about these issues. But for those listening, how has this legislation impacted the work that school-based speech and language pathologists perform daily? Great question. This is the crux of what we do. It kind of goes back to what we talked about uh, with our roles and responsibilities early on. Um, and that is that in the schools, our roles and responsibilities are determined not just by ASHA's practice standards, those, like Jen mentioned, apply to all SLPs, clinical and school, but also by the two federal laws that you just mentioned, as well as our Michigan state uh, administrative rules for special education and our local education agency's written procedures. So our school roles are actually much more comprehensive than our roles in other practice settings. But what's great about it is the legislation really ensures that speech and language pathologists engage in evaluations and therapy that don't just target an underlying uh, communication, speech or language delay, but also are considering what impact that has on the child in the classroom and what type of specially designed instruction um, is appropriate for the child. It's where really the, the gold is for school practice. And I think in my experience, when I speak to parents who are looking for evaluations and trying to understand the process, they're really grateful when I explain what a school evaluation will provide and how it's a little bit different than an independent or a clinic or a hospital evaluation because they're grateful to hear that um, the school evaluation is evaluating and intervening across those additional areas. So really the supports are all about ensuring access to and progress in the general 
curriculum so that all individuals, birth to 26 in our state, exit the educational systems college and career ready. College and career readiness uh, for everybody all across the board, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so before we wrap up, I just wanted to touch on if there's any topics that I didn't bring up that you are passionate about and want to bring up, share any resources. How can families learn more if they need support? Can we touch on and talk about some of those things? Absolutely. So if uh, family members are concerned for any part of their child's development in any of the areas we've talked about today, we would really encourage you to check out ASHA's Identify the Signs uh, website at identifythesigns.org to learn more. Uh, locally in Oakland County, families who have kiddos under five who are interested in an evaluation can contact our early our Oakland Schools Early Childhood Referral Specialist, Lori Leonard, by calling 248-209-2084. And families of school-aged children who are interested in any evaluation can contact the Special Education Office of their local district of attendance. Great contacts. Before we um, do wrap up, I did want to talk to Jen a little bit about alternative technologies, assistive technologies. What are some, I'm a big technology guy. I love gadgets and things like that. And I know from my, just being in the education world that there are technologies available that help these students that have these disabilities communicate. Can you talk about some of those things and how they're really helping our students perform? Sure, absolutely. And we have come so far in the field of alternative and augmentative communication, which is the assistive technology type that most um, comes to mind when we think about students with significant speech and language impairments. Of course, there are the um, assistive technologies that you would see in schools more often for students with um, you know, reading disabilities. There's the voice to text that we're also great at using now. Um, and there are some you know, text to speech features um, within you know writing applications for students with high incidence disabilities so your learning disabilities um, dyslexia those kinds of things and SLPs will support those but when I think of um, assistive technology I, I really am thinking as an SLP that I'm most frequently supporting alternative and augmentative communication. And so those can be very low-tech solutions like paper-based core boards or paper-based communication boards. And they can be, you know, all the way at the other end of the spectrum with, with high-tech devices that are dedicated just to communication. Now we have so many wonderful apps that can be loaded right onto an iPad um, that will have a robust vocabulary for communication and our students who are um, non-speaking or primarily non-speaking can utilize those devices, excuse me, um, to become proficient communicators and communicate what they want to whomever they want, whenever they want. So it doesn't have to be high tech. Anything from a, a chart taped to the corner of a student's desk to an iPad that they can push a button that's a, for a nonverbal student that says, I need to use the restroom. Sure, absolutely. And as long as we are making sure that the chart that's taped to the desk also is portable to go to the gym and, you know, follows them everywhere because communication is something that if we tried not to do it for a day, we would notice very quickly, you can't go without communicating unless you are alone in the woods in Alaska. Sure. And even then you're chatting with Which yourself. Which sounds fun sometimes, <laughs> but not right now. Right. So, you know, we, we want to make sure that any system, whether high tech or low tech, um, is supporting the student throughout their day. Definitely follows them from environment to environment mm -hmm. because communication is everywhere. It is. 
Lastly, if you had to describe the work that you perform every single day as a speech consultant in Oakland County, what would that one word be? I know, we're talking about communication, now I put you to one word. For Diane, what is it for you? I'm going with powerful. Powerful. You can't ask a language person to do one word, so oh. I'm doing life-changing. Okay, we'll take a <laughs> because phrase. Because there's a hyphen. <laughs> I like it. Powerful, life-changing. You guys, uh, both of you and all of your team are definitely powerful and life-changing, and I'd just like to thank you for joining us today. I'd like to thank Oakland School speech and language pathologists slash consultants, Diane Katakowski and Jennifer Ryan for sharing their ex expertise today. And we just wish you the best of luck as you move forward throughout this school year. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll shift gears and discuss the deaf and hard of hearing community, as well as be joined by Oakland School's audiologists, Janice Rich and deaf and hard and hearing teacher consultants, Tina Roy and Nancy Sullivan. We'll be right back. Do you have a show idea, question, or comment, or want to get recognized as a listener of the month? If so, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at educationallyspeaking at oakland.k12.mi.us. That's educationallyspeaking at oakland.k12.mi.us. We are back. In the second segment, we are joined by audiologist Janice Rich, deaf and hard of hearing teacher consultants Tina Roy, and Nancy Sullivan. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm truly excited to learn from all of your expertise, and I believe our listeners will feel the same sentiment when this is all said and done. Let's start off by each of you briefly summarizing your role a little bit and discussing what your day-to-day -day may look like. I know it's different every single day, but if you could just touch on that. And then, um, from what I understand, Oakland Schools has four audiologists and eight DHS, DHH, excuse me, deaf and hard of hearing teacher consultants serving the students across Oakland County. Uh, Janice, let's start with you. Yes, hi. Thanks so much, Mark, for having us. So glad you're here. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, I am one of four educational audiologists at Oakland Schools, and we provide consultative support and services to um, children age birth through 26 years of age. Now, is that a Michigan thing, or is that that state by state? It's state by state. In Michigan, we're fortunate enough to be able to service students, children from birth through age and 26. And adults that may need yes, those extra support. absolutely. Yeah, and the ones that we service obviously are deaf or hard of hearing. Um, our just in a nutshell, our primary goal as the educational audiologist is really to ensure that the children have access, auditory access, in their learning environments. Um, in terms of our schedule, that's interesting you mentioned, yes, it, if you looked at any one of our calendars, you would see something different and it could be changing even on the fly. Probably have to color code it, right? It's exactly. so busy. Exactly, yes, with our different districts that we have and what we're doing. But just to give you an idea, you know, if um, let's say tomorrow I may start my day out in one of my school districts and I may be joining a school team to see an infant providing early intervention services. Maybe that baby was recently fit with hearing aids and I'm there to help support the team and the family with questions they may have. Um, may wrap up that visit and grab a bite in the car and then maybe I'm on my way to maybe join a team or do a DHH evaluation for a student, so maybe at an elementary school. May check my email and see, oh, so-and-so's hearing assistive technology isn't working, can you help? Maybe I can swing by, if not, I'll put it down for another day. And then that's a school visit you that's would do. That's a school visit. There are other days for us audiologists where we're actually at our office. You know, we may be doing some hearing evaluations for the preschool population. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Sure. But 
Um, you know, we may be there working with the hearing assistive technology. So again, our schedules just are always different. So with the younger, with the babies, as you mentioned, an infant, would that be a home visit? It would be a home visit, thank you. Yes, it would be a home visit. We would actually join the local school team, that early on provider, and go into the home. Very nice. So that family would reach out to that district, that district that would then reach out to you, and then you guys would collaborate and partner for that student exactly. or child yes. and, or baby. Yes. Great. Can we go to you, Nancy? Could you talk a little bit about your day today? So I, my schedule looks exactly very similar to what Janice talked about. So same thing, wake up in the morning, you might see a baby. And then as soon as you're finished with the baby in the home, I'm running to a school, maybe a high schooler, maybe a post high student. Your schedule is set, but at the same time, it's never set. Very flexible, right? Very flexible. flexible. Um, you'll get a text message from a parent or maybe a teacher, and the teacher is asking, you know, oh, we have hearing assistive technology issue. Can you go over there? That happened yesterday. I didn't have that on my schedule. It worked out. I could pop in there and fix it. Got some assistance from Janice, and FaceTime works great. Yeah, she can look and see. Technology, right? Technology. Helps get our jobs done every single day. Yes. And I assume, Tina, kind of the same deal. Absolutely. I do. Uh, Janice and uh, the rest of the audiologists work very closely with us teacher consultants. We're very close partnership in what we do with our students. Uh, the little bit of difference that we do as teacher consultants is that our services can be more direct, meaning we could work one-on-one -on -one at longer lengths with families and, and children and students in the schools. So that's something we do a little differently than them. Yes. Well, that's good. Thank you in advance for all the work that you're doing and shifting things around and moving your schedule around to better accommodate all of the families and students that you serve. So in segment one, um, I did discuss celebrating better hearing and speech month. Why do you ladies believe it's such an important initiative? Yeah, you know, better hearing and speech month was actually founded back in 1927. Um, by the American Speech Language Hearing Association. And it was really to bring awareness to hearing health and communication disorders. And so every month in May, we have that opportunity to bring that awareness of, you know, how is your hearing? You know, maybe hopefully have people think about it, get their hearing checked. Think about just our world and auditory noises in the world and just looking at how we want to protect our hearing, you Absolutely. know, and that can go from children, right, all the way through adulthood. So just things that we want to bring awareness to. Um, kind of on an interesting note, I know we deal with children at Oakland schools, but um, according to the National Institute on Deafness and Other Communication Disorders, you know, there's 36 million Americans that have hearing loss, and that's about 17% of the adult population, and it's kind of unfortunate because only about 20% of those people actually kind of reach out or seek out treatment. Wow. And, you know, I, that's why we think that Better Hearing and Speech Month and advocating, you know, for those with hearing loss is so important. And so, and I know this is out of your realm maybe, but how are those adults gaining access to interventions or hearing supports is it all related is it based on their insurance how does that work you once know, they're past that 26 year old threshold yeah and that's a great question and i'll just from personal experience i just happened to have a well visit with my physician and the nurse that came in and you know they do the blood pressure and all that one of the questions she asked is how do you feel your hearing is would you like a hearing test 
and I said, I'm an audiologist. That's a great question. You know, we talked about that. So I like the fact that even when people are going for their well visits, you know, at a certain age, I think it's 55 and older, they're asking those questions. I've also seen some more, um, you know, advertisements on TV, you know, kind of, you know, talking about technology. And how to get the hearing aids exactly. maybe, those assistive technologies. Mm -hmm. You know, I think sometimes we just, as adults, we just take our senses for granted. Yes. You know, we wake up and we run and we go and we're not really checking in with ourselves. So um, thank you for that information. I have a two-part question. And the research that you guys all shared with me as we were preparing for this podcast, you mentioned that 15% of school-aged children have some degree of hearing loss. So what diagnostic tools are you guys using to identify the hearing loss? And what are the next steps once you realize that a student may need some help? How does the family receive your supports? Janice, I'll go back yes. to you. Yes, thank you. You know, depending on the developmental age of the child, there are so many different ways to test hearing. And it really is the clinical audiologists out there in the community that are doing those evaluations. So we'll talk a little bit more about how, you know, the educational audiologist then kind of comes in and looks at it from an educational perspective. But some of the testing that can be done um, are objective measures. For instance, we have newborn infant hearing screening. So babies are screened before they leave the hospital. They have their hearing tested. And those audiologists or whoever's testing could be a nurse, they're using objective measures like auditory brainstem response testing, otoacoustic emissions. And without getting too much in detail, those are tests that can be done while an infant or baby is sleeping. It's an sure. objective measure. Well, I have two little ladies at home, so I do recall them do coming in and doing that work. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. There's also some subjective measures. So for older children, you know, who um, maybe can do a play condition task. So if, for instance, if I were testing your hearing, I may ask you to raise your hand when you hear a tone as we're checking those different frequencies. For a child, we make it a game. and We'll have them drop blocks in a bucket. So really, depending on the developmental age of the child, we can do different things. Lots of different techniques and ways to get to that final result that you're looking for. Exactly. So are all children with hearing loss eligible for special education support and services throughout the state of Michigan? So any child that has a diagnosis with a hearing loss, they are eligible for special education, but not all children actually need that extra support. So we have children that, have, that go to a resource room for support. They see us, Tina and I, as a teacher consultant for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing, direct. We actually teach them when they come to us. We are um, doing some auditory training with them. Sometimes it's just consultative. There are also children that are in the classroom with hearing aids or cochlear implants that don't need any support, that they are achieving and at the academic level. But in order to get those services, um, parents or the local district will reach out to us and they ask us to complete a multidisciplinary um, evaluation of a child that they have been given a hearing an audiogram for. So some of the things that we look at when we go in to do an evaluation, we're not just looking at what is their hearing loss, what does it say on their audiogram, we're also looking at their language, where's their vocabulary at, are they using amplification, what is their social emotional attachment to that amplification, are they embarrassed by it? Are they proud of it? Are they like super ears? How are they referring to it? How emotionally have they um, accepted they have a hearing loss? Are they getting any teasing from you know the other kids in the classroom or maybe just at recess? Kids Absolutely. that don't know. 
Um, so we look at those things, so that personal adjustment and their, their communication style, we look at that as well. So then after we have collected all this data, then we sit down at the table with parents, speech language pathologists, whoever is on that team, the teachers, and we talk about those the three questions that we um, that we answer first: audiological factors, the hearing loss itself. Second of all, is that hearing loss adversely affecting the child's academic performance? So is it negatively impacting them? And third, do they require specialized instruction? And specialized instruction could be from either Tina and I, or it could be just the local resource room teacher or a speech language pathologist. And then we determine if it is adversely affecting their education and they need specialized instruction, how much is that? Is that two to three times a week? Is it once a week? Is it three or four times a year? So that's different that's levels of hearing loss, case by case basis, obviously. Um, and even the harm factors, the reasoning as to how a student may have lost their hearing is different. For every child, so, yes. So what if we know a student is making improvements and they're gaining um, improvements? Where do we go from there? And any of you can take that question. Well, if they're closing a gap and we see that they're um, reaching levels that would be similar to their hearing peers, same age hearing peers, then generally we start backing off our services mm -hmm. and we start letting them just be a part build of build that independence yeah, be a part of the school we don't want to hold them back in any way and some students like nancy said you know we look at all those factors when we're evaluating and if they're being successful if things are going great then they might not need our help at all they might just need uh, some accommodations in the classroom maybe just their hearing assistive technology uh, that's all they need to be successful maybe just closed captioning so those are different levels of supports that would not include Nancy or I. and then the teacher is obviously identifying those improvements and gains and then communicates through to you and the team through the IEP meetings yep. yeah or, or on a or, daily basis even you know, if they have a, a test coming up or a student did really well, they'll share that with us. Or if they didn't do so well, they'll share that and we can come in and support the student and work on vocabulary or whatever they need to do. And I'm sure the students gain such great relationships with all of you guys and not that they, you know, when they do make these gains, they probably feel saddened by not having your support every day in the classroom. I've seen that. Um, and Potentially, it, some of us, some of them could have us for years. <laughs> yes, that's really the gift of our become job. Become your family almost. Yeah. yeah, a lot of times what we tell parents, you know, when we have these little babies or small children, the goal, you know, and we want to just give them the support that they need so that when they get a little bit older, we can celebrate that, that, wow, look at how great they're doing. They don't require us or specialized instruction. That's always the goal. I love that. How and many graduations have you guys been to over the years for these <laughs> Quite students? a few. Quite a yeah. few. Just went to a graduate uh, MSU graduation. Very good. A dinner. Just, yeah. <laughs> Very exciting. Good work. Great work. Um, how does hearing loss impact language development? You kind of just did mention mm -hmm. that a little bit, the speech and language aspect of it all and how all of these disabilities can kind of intertwine. So how does that um, impact the language and in turn affect one's ability to learn in the classroom? Well, uh, Janice touched on a little bit of that, um, uh, that there's different levels of where we initially get to start working with a child. If they're little, might, you know, babies or infants might be different than if they're preschool or elementary or even middle school and high school. So where they're at, we have to consider all that information. Um, so if they were a child or an infant, I should say, 
uh, we look at you know the sensory input of all of us as babies when you hold your baby when you look at your baby when you touch your baby when you mm -hmm. talk to your baby they're sensory beings and if we're affecting one of those sensories the sensory inputs we wanna you know make sure that we're still giving them all we have even if there's one that might be <laughs> missing um, trying to develop it and strengthen it and yes 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 so uh, sometimes we can do that through touch we can do that through just sight you know for some of them uh, you can even talk to them still with you know talking with your words moving your mouth they're watching everything you do on your face uh, we just we really encourage to babies and families that have little ones is that all communication is very good you to know like just these children just engage them in who you are what you would normally do and then we look at um, over time, families get to decide, you know, how they want to follow up with that mode of communication. Some of them want to really focus on the visual uh, component of it and may choose American Sign Language as an approach. Some of them choose to move forward with uh, wanting listening and spoken language for their child, so they'll follow up with hearing aid amplification or another type of uh, cochlear implant, uh, depending on their level of hearing loss that type of amplification. Very layered work, very yes. layered work. Um, can we talk about, and you guys have kind of included this in your answers, but all of the collaboration that must take place, it's just important. And the only way to gain the results and gain the um, outcomes that we're all looking for as an IEP team or whatever the case may be, it takes that collaboration. So wh who's all part of that in your guys' world? Yeah, for me, you know, as the educational audiologist, I think it's so important. We, I think we really enjoy this part of our, our work is that collaboration and sharing information with community-based audiologists and ear, nose, and throat physicians and other professionals, you know, that really, you know, where it's relative to that student's educational needs. And we are very fortunate in Michigan at our state level, you know, we have an active group of educational audiologists as well as clinical audiologists, and we meet on a quarterly, excuse me, a quarterly basis under our Michigan Audiology Coalition. And so we really come together and we're able to discuss relevant issues, technology updates. In fact, we just had a meeting and two of our um, reps for our equipment um, that we use, manufacturer reps, were represented and we were able to ask questions, get the latest updates. And so the clinical audiologists as well as the educational audiologists are hearing the same information and we're able to kind of bridge that gap between the medical and educational world, so to speak. And with working in the medical world and with the assistive technologies and the devices, we know right now there's a critical supply chain issue across the board. Is that impacting your world at all? You know, we're fortunate at Oakland Schools that we have a nice supply of hearing assistive technology, but I know exactly what you're saying because it wasn't too long ago where we were trying to get pieces of equipment and they were, you know, from the manufacturer. It's never happened before. And they're like, we're sorry, it's going to be delayed, delayed a month or two. And we're like, what? But we have enough, you know, to get us by. Certainly. But, we're lucky, but there's many yes. schools and districts across probably the country and world we know that are very limited in, in resources. And so, exactly. yes, we're very fortunate here, so we're gonna just um, continue to do that great work, and I know you guys will. 
In addition, we're fortunate that um, the clinical audiologists and educational audiologists, you know, meet with our state um, early hearing detection and intervention coordinator. It's just another way, again, to bridge that gap from the medical to the educational models. And then that attention is really brought to uh, early on, which at Oakland Schools here, we do have a great early on team. They receive that information of children who may have been referred from Eddie, uh, from the early detection hearing group, and also from the newborn hearing screenings. They get that information here at early on, and they notify districts. And they say, hey, there's somebody identified in your area. And then the districts try and follow up with families. Also, which is really great here in Michigan, we have something called Michigan Hands and Voices mm -hmm. that also reach out to families once they fail near uh, newborn hearing screenings just to see if families need any support. So there's a lot of people checking in on families initially to encourage them or say, hey, are you interested in any, any supports or services? Or would you like us to come and talk to you a little bit? And then if they they choose to do that, then they'll contact us at Oakland Schools to go on out to the families. So you make a great point because also I remember, and this is this did not have to do with um, her their hearing, but I remember getting a letter from the Oakland County Health Department before kindergarten asking about vision and the other census. So um, do we partner with the Oakland County Health Department? Yep. Absolutely, we do. Yes, so that's it, and it starts off at the new, the younger, zero to three, but once they reach school age, the health department does go out, and that's great service that we do have at all the counties in Michigan. They go out and do those wellness checks, and then they send it to families what the results are. The difference there is families then have to follow up on their own, where if you're under the age of three, there's a lot of people who will check up on you over the age of three, not as much, but I'm sure Janice has some more she can offer on that. Yeah, no, that's perfect, Tina. Yeah, the, the we partner quite a bit with the Oakland County Health um, Department and their division of hearing and screening, they do a great job. I mean, they see preschoolers and then it's the targeted grades are kindergarten, second and fourth grade. So that's exactly what you were that's referring to, That's what I got, to, that was Mark. the letter yeah. that I received. And you know, there are times too where, you know, if a school district isn't sure, you know, is this child hearing, is there a problem? We help them reach out to the Oakland County Health Department and when they're in that school, as long as they have written permission from a parent, they can actually do screening of that child. So, so a lot of times those we bridges. can coordinate Exactly, it's building those bridges. That's really good work. And also, the bridges are so important. Even when they get into the school and they are have an IEP plan, the collaboration between the audiologist, the local Oakland schools audiologist, as well as those private audiologists, your physical therapy, your private speech and language pathologist, the speech and uh, language pathologists in the district, all of us, that collaboration is so crucial for the su success of the child throughout their academic careers. And the parent, a parent is integral to all of this. Absolutely. If not, the most important piece yes. is support in the home. Yes. Um, the work that you do, you can do it in these educational settings, but it's just like a teacher. You can only have that child for so long, and then if they go to their environment and they don't pick up and continue to build their skills, we're starting at ground zero again the next day. And so, yes, yes parents are so important, and so we need you to stay involved in your child's lives and in your child's education. Absolutely. So let's switch gears for a second. Without effective laws and proper funding, the work of educators and the experts like yourselves can become much, much more difficult. So where do we currently stand with some of that work? 
Well, as educators um, and as teachers for the deaf and hard of hearing, we are part of um, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act funding. So that's uh, a federal funding. So we're funded through that and we're required for any student who has a hearing loss and the, the family and the district have decided to move forward with an evaluation. We are part of that multidisciplinary team for the school. So we're included in that. So because of that, um, we're re you know, IDA still funds us. But one thing in Michigan that we're really noting for ourselves is, which is happening everywhere in the United States, Lots especially of in Michigan. Right now. Absolutely, there's a critical shortage for us, uh, for teachers who are endorsed, special ed teachers who are endorsed for deaf and hard of hearing. So uh, that is something that we are really closely monitoring and knowing, for, especially for our state, all of the university level special education teacher certification programs for endorsement in deaf and hard of hearing have closed and they've been closed since our last one closed in 2013. Mm -hmm. So we haven't had that, those options available to us. One thing though, the Michigan Department of Ed Low Incident Outreach Group has started doing is a consortium uh, through Aquinas College. And nice you already have to have a teacher certificate um, to begin that program. But they are offering, you know, from, some, yeah, some partial reimbursement sure. too for people. Mm -hmm. um, but that is something that uh, we are would like to see more of in our state. So sure. if you're a high school senior listening or a college student listening, and you love to help people and you want to improve hearing across the board for individuals, go and check out your local college programs. Yes. Yes, yes, and it's a fabulous job. We love yeah. what we do. <laughs> we do. I'm sure you go home at night and feel yes. filled with gratitude because you guys really are making a difference in so many lives every single day. So I do love to share good news. Are there any recent or maybe even historic student stories that you could share where we touch on some of the success of some of your students at where are they now kind of deals? Oh, that's great. Yeah, we have so many, but mm -hmm. I know we can highlight a few. Um, gosh, we had a graduate from Holly High School back in 2008, I believe it was, and she received her Doctor of Audiology degree from Wayne State University, wow. and she is an educational audiologist for Trenton Public Schools. So great. So we celebrate that, love that. Um, gosh, there were three students from West Bloomfield High School. One attended Johns Hopkins, um, and he is a neuroradiologist. Wow. Um, we have a young lady who's working towards her audiology degree at Grand Valley State University, a freshman at the University of Michigan studying engineering, and I recently had a graduate from Catholic Central in Novi, and he plans on studying um, engineering and business at the University of Michigan. Very good. Go yeah. blue. I try to squeeze one of those in every <laughs> now and then. Then we have to say go green. Okay, <laughs> okay. We can play nice. Yes. I have to talk about the Deaf Olympics. We have our own from Bloomfield Hills, Brooke Amazing. Thompson. She came home with five golds and three bronze medals. Congratulations. So we're really proud of her. So much. Um, so we have a, a student from Waterford High School who returned to his alma mater, who's now a chemistry teacher there, but he just got his PhD. Wow. Very There's nice. a junior in art design at Rochester Institute of Technology. Chris Samp, who attended Troy High School, is now the director for the Office of Disability Affairs. That is excellent. Isn't Coming full awesome? circle there. Yes. We have a dentist in Bloomfield Hills who went to Brother Rice. 
And Sean Forbes is a graduate of the Bloomfield Hills Deaf and Hard of Hearing and is a deaf rapper wow. who performed at this year's Super Bowl. Say his name one more time, please, for Sean our listeners. Forbes, Sean S-E-A-N-F-O-R-B-E-S. Forbes, S-E-A-N-F-O-R-B-E-S. We'll look into him. Very nice. Oh, and then I have a recent student, just graduated, went to Wild Lake Western High School, and he has an engineering degree and he has a job with GM he started right away I'm very proud so happy for these individuals yes. and it just goes to show that no matter what circumstances you're faced with in life you can overcome them especially with great expert support like what you guys provide every day truly no limits thank you for sharing those stories um, love to hear the good news so I always like to give our guests an opportunity to share some resources with our listeners just in case they may know of a family or a student who may be of need of deaf and hard of hearing support. Can you provide some resources to our families or our listeners? Sure. As Tina mentioned earlier, there is Hands and Voices. They are a phenomenal group that really supports families. Um, also, you can reach out to us on Facebook. It's Oakland Schools Deaf and Hard of Hearing group. They can request to join that. We also have a wakelet, and you can find the wakelet at wakelet.com slash at O-S- T-C-D-H-H. So that's W-A-K-E-L-E-T. L-E-T dot com slash at the at sign. O-S-T-C-D-H-H. Perfect. And I'm sure they could Google that as well and it would probably pop right up in their search. Any other websites, digital resources before we begin to wrap up? No, I think that covers it. All right. So lastly, and this could be tough for you, if each of you had to describe the work that you do, in one word, what would that one word be? And I'm gonna go backwards this time. We'll stick with you, Nancy, go ahead. So this year, I would say it's been a challenging year, but- I love that what? it goes year to year, by it the way. It is year to year, but you know what? What we do, it's life-changing. Life-changing for us, but also life-changing with the students we work with. Sometimes we see kids when they're two months old, maybe, and we get to watch them go to college and we build those relationships with them and they are like you mentioned it's earlier it's work. family it is they become our family they're our little babies and they grow up and blossom and fly away so true yes. tina one word or i'll give you a small phrase like life changing i'll give oh, you two sorry. two words if you need it well my word would be promising promising and just like nancy we probably go year to year but i think through covid time that we've had i really feel like pendulums are swinging and in a positive way and there is more out of the box thinking and so I feel like the word would be promising. Great. Miss Janice. And I have one word. One word. We're going to get this done with one word. Go ahead. Rewarding. Rewarding. Yes. It has been for me since I started at Oakland Schools. Nice way to sum it up too. Yes. Absolutely. Um, the, li- the work that you do, it is life-changing, it is promising, and it is so very rewarding. We're so happy that you were here today to take some time. I'd like to thank our guests, Diane Katakowski, Jennifer Ryan, Janice Rich, Tina Roy, and Nancy Sullivan. We are so grateful for the work that you all do and perform every day to serve the students across Oakland County. I'd like to also say hello and thank you to everyone listening on 89.5 WAHS, 89.3 Lakes FM, radio CMLF.org, 
Remember, you can download the Educationally Speaking podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. This podcast was brought to you by Oakland Schools Intermediate School District's Communication Services and is produced by Media Production and Distance Learning Manager Mark Hansen. Oakland Schools is a regional service agency in Oakland County, Michigan that offers support and services to schools, personnel, which are better delivered regionally and provide cost, size, and quality advantages to those we serve. You can find all episodes of Educationally Speaking on our Oakland Schools website at oakland.k12.mi.us and FM, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We hope you will continue to tune in as we discuss topics that affect every student every day.